Hey gang, it's Harold. I'm podcasting to you from the bunker. In the interest of distracting myself and my gaming friends, I'm reaching out to some interesting people to ask them what they're doing game-wise. With such a big-time dividend, I want to hear what they're playing, designing, or thinking about. No CNN, no CNBC, just games. My production obsession will have to be put on hold as I'm most interested in communicating with you rapidly and with some interesting content. This podcast documents a discussion I had with designer Volko Runka. Hey, Harold. Good morning, Volko. How are you? Good, good. So you say I look 25 and that other pick me. You know they didn't have uh, Skype when I was 25, you know. (laughs) Whatever it was. I don't know. It, it had a picture of a can and a string as well. Okay. All right. Yeah, yeah. That's my old account. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, hold on a second. I got to hit this music here. Hold on. <laughs> How are you? I'm doing great, thank you. How are you? I am I am doing great, actually. Everybody happy and rallied there? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. We're we're pretty pretty happy and rallied. Uh, we realize the dog is probably realizing this time she doesn't have any box time, which means she doesn't have to ever be alone. Yes. Uh, that's important to her, so. Yes. Yeah, that's what we were talking about, the bliss of being a dog just uh, over dinner last night. Yeah. That uh, getting tons of attention and um, lots of walks. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you don't mind, I'd like to set out a couple of, uh, a few ground rules to, for our discussion. Sure. So the first rule is uh, no, discu- no discussion of medicine or medical condition. Uh, no discussion of politics is the second, and the third is no discussion of financial markets. That sounds like a fair contract. Good. All right. So uh, offered and accepted. Appreciate you taking the time to, to talk today. I um, The first podcast that I recorded two years ago was uh, Voco Runka. We talked about the uh, levying campaign series that was new at the time and had yet to be released. What have we done? <laughs> and we have uh we have another on p500 i understand that's right almoravid yeah volume volume two so it looks like we may have a series that's great news it's officially a series i think with two right well it, again it's p500 is only is only provisional so i don't know i think we're in a 200 something pre-order so in in my mind and until it's printed, it's not real. That's okay. Well, we'll uh, if we're gonna ha- if we're gonna hold it to that high standard, uh, we shall. But it will be. Uh, I think it will be fine. We got a glimpse of that at the San Diego Historical Games Convention, where you ran a small session of um, so a Matrix game. Well, the uh, Matrix game is is what you're remembering, and so it is. It's related, but it is not the same as the Levian campaign series game. So the we did do a test um, of Almoravid, the board game there, also in San Diego, but the larger event with eight eight player roles and judges, and we had uh, of Almoravid as a matrix game, and I'll say in a moment what that is. That was, and we had at least one player role was a team of, of two, and I think we had at times up to three judges, so that's, you know, about a dozen of us or so gathered around in a multiplayer kind of variant. And what Matrix Gaming is, is a, a sort of, uh, it's, it's, I'd say, mainly role play that is, uh, you know, refereed role play, but it also includes some board gaming elements to it and actually some aspects of, of debate. And it's a, a way of um, gaming out situations that are that's used quite a bit in, in defense organizations and in academia. Um, it has a lot of, lot of strengths for getting at, getting at um, exposition from the, from the players as essentially experts to drive the action. And the experiment here with Almoravid was, could I take a uh, you know, a historical board war game design, leverage that research and components and very quickly then um, design a matrix game and would it work and would it be fun and even if, you know, not all the players involved were necessarily experts on the topic. 
And so that experiment, you had spurred that, Harold, with, you know, asked me to do something like that for San Diego. And I actually did it here as a sort of a practice run in my basement with some folks from the foreign policy, intel, defense community, kind of, you know, the war game community that surrounds Washington, D.C. And uh, and that worked pretty well. And so San Diego, when we did that, I was I was very happy with the results. Um, and there's a great um, Twitter thread of a lot of great photographs and essentially the narrative of what happened um, from uh, David Giannis, who is a, I guess, a Spaniard living in California. So it was very exciting to me that we had, the game is set in medieval Spain, that we had a Spaniard as one of the judges for the, the Matrix game was, was really cool. And then what I ended up doing is when I took Almoravid to the Wargame Convention in Spain, Badajoz, Bayatacon, um, Wargamers Con in January, this past January, uh, in addition to playing a whole lot of the Levian campaign series Almoravid, we ended up, my uh, researcher Albert Allegrejove and I and other and Spanish playtesters of the game uh, who are still testing, we ended up running during that one con nine different playtests, which was outstanding. Uh, amount of data, but but I also did the same Matrix game that I did in San Diego with you, uh, there at Badajoz, and so and this was with all Spaniard players and judges, and that was just uh, you know that was a hoot, and uh, and I will say in all three of those games, the one one thing that was consistent because the the narratives and the play were different, but the one thing that was consistent was that that the the, the player playing El Cid. Um, Rodrigo uh, um, was just a complete bastard every single time, and it was just a, a joy to see that <laughs> mission accomplished. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the interesting things about the Matrix game in San Diego, and it's a it's a process. It wasn't as much Almoravid as it was uh, your process, which was just interesting to me. Was yeah, players would players would have time to designate their actions, right? And they would designate their actions to you, the judge. And then um, others would have a chance, as you mentioned, to debate. And that's where the debate really came in was what are the impacts of the actions, the probabilities of success, what does failure look like, what's everything in between. Um, yes. And, and it, was, it was great because uh, as judges we had the chance to ask questions uh, of the intent, of, of the specifics. And, uh, and at the end the judge made the choice um, – as I recall, sometimes there was even a die roll, wasn't there? Exactly. Uh, so, and this is where the the board gaming element of it comes in, and 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 that is that there's the game board is there. There are some pieces, and we're maintaining the the state of the military campaign or the political situation or whatever it is we're modeling on the table, and it looks very much like a a, a board game that everybody can can see, and then. The outcomes of the actions are are determined by by a die roll, much as in a board game or in a, in a role playing game. But the probability, what the die roll range is, is determined by argument, like a little closer to a seminar game and and uh, the kind of white cell adjudication if you play a DoD style. Um, seminar game, and so Matrix gaming kind of draws from all those worlds and combines that in a very in a very handy way. And the, the 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 central mechanic is that a player on their turn says what they want to do, what they want the impact of that action to be, and why they think that will succeed. And then everybody else around the table gets to make arguments for or against that proposition that this will succeed and have the desired result. And and then, as you said, the judges or judge um, uh, the judges then will make will have listened to all that, weighed that, perhaps ask some questions or whatever, and they will assign a uh, a probability. And I use I just use a ten sided die, and so the judges are allowed to say ten percent chance of success, hundred percent chance of success, whatever it is. And then we generally average out those. You know, if, if one judge says. 60, one says 70, and I say 80, we go with 70, let's say. And that means on a seven or less, that action, that player action succeeds with the desired result. And then just as in role-playing games, as you might, if you're refereeing an RPG, 
the degree to which the, the, the die roll hits or misses that threshold also gives you some input in terms of the, the more detailed narrative of how badly did it fail or, or how brilliantly did it succeed. And so, so there's the chance element, of course, that's driving things forward as in all, um, all, all you know, human affairs. Um, but the fundamental engine is the arguments, first the inventiveness and then the, that the players have because they can declare any action they want. They can say, well, I'm going to fly to the moon uh, if they want. But, but, the prob- but, but the arguments that convince the whole group uh, and the judges especially that, um, that there's a certain percentage chance that this action actually will succeed – and there are many, many variants of this. You can involve players in determining what those um, what those numbers should be. Uh, you can do it with just one judge. You can do it with a panel of judges. Um, so what I did in San Diego is kind of my my preferred way, having done you know a good amount of this kind of gaming in my day job. Uh, and 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 it it works very well. It's very easy actually to write games um, because so much is driven by the players. Um, sort of wide open options and their own inventiveness and, and argumentation. And and this was, I wrote that game for San Diego in about a day. It took me a day to produce that. I didn't really change it at all um, among the three runnings. And I, and I think people really enjoyed it. And so, so you can take um, a suitable, uh, you know, board game, even, not, it doesn't even have to be a multiplayer one if there are actually roles that you can assign because this is the, the other thing. Almorav is a two-player operational military game and I just used the same research and components to do an eight-player um, um, operational two but with a lot more diplomacy obviously that, that's going on between two players, um, multiplayer uh, role-playing matrix game and it, it converted very well. It was, uh, it was great. The feedback here was terrific. Um, I'm glad and, to hear. It. And as I think about it, the the components you had, you had the map, you had pieces that represented the resources, the players, the the uh, their ability to um, to levy, and uh, and and the units they represented their, of course, units that represented their their personal, um, yeah, not not just piece, but their personal unit, and uh, yeah, and then of course you assigned some some victory conditions yes which are which are critical i would assume and then much of the rest you know for example uh, combat resolution there was no discussion of how to resolve combat that was all judged and debated yes yes exactly so so the components you mentioned almost all of that just actually came from my prototype board game play test set the, the units the lord pieces the the um, identifying uh, flags and things like that. I added some some coins, some you know medieval coins uh, from another game because we needed some money to trade back and forth. It isn't in Almorav in that way. Um, and some colored beads just to. One thing that's important for this is if you have eight to a dozen people gathered around a big table, then the things that are on the the board game need to be quite visible. And so I have some colored beads, and I could just. Put this down. I put a you know a green bead down here means that you know the Muslims are 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 in a of high morale in this town or something like that. And so we we marked we had little markers like that. But yeah, the magic ingredients for the Matrix game is that every player for their role has objectives. And in the way I did it for Almoravid, each player had three objectives in order of priority, one, two, three, and these are assigned and secret. And so I had actually some sort of wax sealed little slips of paper that every every role player got and they could see what their objectives were. And those, like any victory conditions in a board game, those incentives, those certain objectives then drive the, um, you know, drive the player behavior and therefore the, the interactions. Uh, and I didn't sort of write it to oh let's make let's write El Cid as being a you know a, a jerk. Um, I basically put in what I thought were historical incentives, but that that interaction then is kind of a result of the experiment, if you will, produced a an El Cid who is 
quite quite treacherous and, and double sided um, to in each in each with three different groups you know and different parts of the world so that was that was really neat to see um, the other thing that is important to provide in the matrix game that you don't necessarily need necessarily need in a board game although it's very helpful is I did provide all the players ahead of time at least a couple of pages of background on the setting. Uh, because if the matrix, if in matrix games the players need to make arguments and the judges need to make judgments, it's of course better in terms of producing a plausible narrative, historical narrative, if the participants know something about the history. And the tradi- and this was part of the experiment: is would this work in a traditional um, academic or research matrix game? You are playing it with either experts or students who are becoming experts on the setting. And so you can um, you can anticipate that the actions proposed and the arguments made are have some fidelity to the real world, right? These are coming from people who ostensibly know something. So I wanted all the players, whether they had ever ever looked into Reconquista Spain or this particular campaign or medieval warfare in general, I wanted them to have some grounding, some equal grounding that I delivered in. Really, it was only just a couple of pages. And I asked them to, 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 to read that ahead of time. And I think that did, I think that did work, work well. And what comes out then when you have eight to a dozen players is, is, is crowd wisdom, because everybody knows something. All war gamers know something about medieval warfare. Um, all of us know something, most likely, about Spain, the Moors, Reconquista, all of us know something about roads and mountain passes and weather and so forth. And so so I think it worked very well that with that common grounding then we came to what I thought at least, uh, and I think if the war gamers enjoyed it and they're war gamers, this is probably true of them too, were highly plausible narratives of what happened in the campaign driven by what the players decided they wanted to do and argued would be effective or not, what the chances were, and and what our judges thought. I mean, so in other words, you can come, you don't have to be a professional his, medieval historian. If you have a group of us, I, I think you, you can, you're tapping all that, all those diverse bits of knowledge, and it gets synthesized in the context of the, of the game. I, and I just, I just thought it worked very, very well. Yeah, it was it was it was good fun. I look forward to uh, to more of that as we gather in the future. I hope I can talk you into uh, to doing uh, to doing another Matrix game. You just did. Good, <laughs> good, good, good. So um, I could talk about this all all day, uh, but I want to hear more about Amaravid the game and yes. what's different, what's new, and a little bit just a touch of the history. Thanks, and uh, it, and it's interesting because I think. I don't know if it was that first podcast, but I thought it was a podcast with you where I talked about my idea for for four volumes in the Levian campaign series, and this was before Nevsky published. Yes. Was that that first? It, it was the first podcast, and I intentionally yeah. asked you what your plans are because you have a history with this. Uh, the coin uh, series. changing my plans. Yeah, <laughs> the coin series had a very clear plan of four games. It did, and and we're yeah, very happy it, with the path you took. But but and, uh, and in this is, yeah, and and now I, I, this is a it's just it's such a rewarding experience I'm going through right now for a second time because the same thing is really happening, uh, and and part of it and part of the the germ of that was that that podcast because I'm I'm pretty sure that Albert in uh, Barcelona heard that podcast because he contacted me and said, well, I heard you say you're going to make a game about El Cid or called El Cid. You know, and I think I, on your podcast, maybe I had mentioned the movie, you know, with Charlton Heston and Sophia Loren or whatever. I mean, I really had no no real idea um, of the, you know, much of the setting, only this this kind of wispy idea, uh, wispy concept. And he said, oh, well, there's so much more that you could do or so much else that you could do on, on you know, Spanish medieval history than the Cid. And, and so I said, okay, good. Will you help me, you know, do the research? (laughs) And he agreed. And, uh, so that was, so that was the start. And we looked at over 700 years of history because the, 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 the reconquest, the series of campaigns among and between Muslims and Christians that 
end up uh, with Iberia being Christian again, um, that took over over seven centuries. And in the Levian campaign series, I can cover two years. So, so we just said, okay, okay, Albert, I'll, I'll take you know, I'll take your contention that there's more than the El Cid that's interesting here. What's the most interesting two years for us to cover? And and that was the starting question. And we did end up, um, I just ended up really uh, fascinated by these two years, 1085, 1086, because you have either side uh, on the offensive at times, you have a lot of um, change and, and ferment. Uh, and so, so rich campaigning and of course a climactic, you know, giant battle. Um, and so it's Almoravid, Reconquista, and Riposte because um, the, the Reconquista part is that the Christians under King Alfonso in 1085 just take a huge bite out of the heart of, of, of Muslim Spain by conquering and incorporating into the Christian kingdom the Emirate of Toledo in the center of, of Spain. And that is uh, it's such a... Um, uh, frightening defeat to the Emirates that they finally get their act together and start to resist in a more unified way the Spanish um, encroachments and go beyond that and invite the fundamentalist Almoravids, this giant African um, Berber army, in to push the Christians back, which and which which they do. And so there's the riposte is they the Almoravids defeat Alfonso at Sagrajas in October 1086. And so that that's the story that, that volume two tells. And happily enough, El Cid is in it, <laughs> but he's kind of a bit player. He may or may not even appear, actually. You may or may not end up mustering him um, to campaign. Uh, but he's in there if you, if you want him, even though he's not the focus. Almoravid, if just to, to address your question of what's different from Nevsky, and so Almoravid is at the opposite corner of medieval Europe, from from Livonia and Russia, and it's and it's a century and a half earlier than than the campaign depicted in Nevsky, and so some things are going to be very vivid when you when you look at the map, open the box, um, set up the game. One is it's it's bigger by fifty percent, and that's purposely so because we are we're covering more geography, but also we are in a part of medieval Europe that is really at the top of the socioeconomic uh, ladder, if you will. Um, even in this time of internal divisions, Muslim Spain was quite rich. They still were still had their monopoly of Mediterranean trade. These emirs are just swimming in gold dinars. And so you have, uh, it ha it, the, I want the game to, to feel like we're in a, in a rich place. There are um, fortifications, Moorish, high, high, you know, the top of the line, if you will, um, fortresses and castles and walled cities all over the map. There's a well-maintained Roman road system. Uh, there's a lot of um, coin flowing around, and yet the the Muslims are not as well mobilized for war. They've, they're a little bit, let's say, soft. They're enjoying their pleasure palaces and poetry and wine and, and harems. And their preference generally is to pay the Christians not to attack them. The the kind of Christian, you know, mountain men coming down to raid the rich Muslim valleys, if you will. Uh, so Spain, as an environment for medieval campaigns, I think in Almoravid will feel quite different. You know, the base rules are very, obviously the same or very similar because it's, because it's part of the same series. But the feeling of the environment, I think, is going to be very different. And the feeling of the armies will be different. Uh, and for example, the logistics um, or weather and seasons. Um, Nevsky actually is ha is actually more complicated in the sense of having to juggle um, lots of different kinds of transport and 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 transport ways and different seasons. In Nevsky, 
moving across the map in winter and moving across the map when everything melts in Rasputitsa is very, very different. Um, and the winter is, is, is quite long and severe. In Spain, the seasons are more gentle. And in winter, since there's so much good campaigning time anyway, and you can get around so well during the campaigning seasons, they, didn't, they generally didn't fight in the winter uh, at all. So the winter is almost is sort of administrative and, and is skipped. And there's some difference between spring, summer, and fall, but 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 not a lot. And the rivers, with the exception of the Guadalquivir, are not really reliable for uh, transport. So there are no boats. Um, it's 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 all carts and, and mules across. So the the transport is actually um, ra- rather simpler in Almoravid. And instead, what you get as part of the environment that's very different is the is the politics. Because the the politics among these emirates, these so-called taifa, petty kingdoms of the Muslims, and and the politics between them and the Christians, and this institution of tribute payments of um, what the Spanish called parias payments, that the Muslims would 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 emirs would pay to the Christians not to attack them or to to to, to fight on their behalf, is an important reason for the fighting that's going on, for the campaigning that's going on. So Albert and I felt we had to include type of politics and parias payments as a pretty fundamental part of the campaign, even though levying campaign series is at the operational level. It's not meant to be a strategic, political, diplomatic game. It's mainly about marshalling armies and maneuvering them uh, uh, around the countryside and, and perhaps fighting some battles. But that the reasons for that campaigning derive so much from the Muslim, intra-Muslim and Muslim Christian politics that that there's a there is a, a sort of a political layer on top of Almoravid that is completely new and not present in Nevsky. So, do you mind if I ask a very specific mechanical question about uh, Almoravid? No, I don't mind. In in combat in Almoravid. And and Nevsky, so so campaign and levy. I assume Almoravid's the same. Where it, it, when there's a combat, a unit that it, the units that attack have a predetermined amount of damage they do, and then the defender gets save rolls de- depending on the type. Correct. Uh, in Pendragon, the approach was very different in that. And of course, a game that is designed by Morgan Guillaume Rote that you worked very closely with her on. Yeah. But in that game, the damage is variable. Uh huh. Um, and so I, w- I was curious about the difference in approach, Volko. Sure. Uh, and and I, you know, I don't know. I haven't had this exactly this conversation with Morgan, and I, I don't know what she would say about whether the combat system in Lesbian campaign, you know, whether she buys that model or not, you know, I really can't, can't predict, but I'll give you my, my point of view uh, of the two. And that is Pendragon is still more at the strategic level. Uh, for example, compare the amount of time that's covered. If you play a full game of Pendragon, I mean, you're playing, a century or more, right? <laughs> right? Okay. If you play a full game of Almoravid, you're playing less than two years. So a single turn is 40 days. And so, so the, the focus in, in Almoravid, there's some strategic stuff. The focus is operational. In Pendragon, I'd say the focus is strategic, but there's some operational stuff in it and, and a, little bit, you know, a little bit of tactical in these battles, perhaps, and in these raids, one could say. Although probably... These battles in Pendragon, if we're covering that many years of time, is that battle really just one field battle or is it the outcome of a series of field battles that are going on over the course of a campaign in a certain kingdom or province or something, right? Um, that might be a question I would, I, would, I would put to Morgan, what she has in, in mind there. This one battle in Pendragon, how much time of fight? Does that represent one day's fighting or, or more? You see what, what's being compacted there? And in, in Almoravid, a battle is almost certainly just a field battle, is almost certainly just a single day's fighting. And now we're differentiating not only with different unit types, but qualities such as which of these units have missiles 
and which of the units, units do not have missiles? Which of these units have javelins, which have regular bows, which have crossbows, which are slingers in Almoravid, okay? Which of these units are armored? Uh, and not only that, which of these units are highly trained, heavily armored knights, European knights on l large chargers, okay? And are they deploying, are we deploying those forces in a field battle or storming wall and so forth? So, so we're getting a, just, a, just, a, just another tick of detail, I think, tactical detail that the battle system in, in Levian campaign series has that, is, that goes a little bit lower down in scale than Pendragon, and I think suitably so. So now, if we're going to distinguish, um, if we're going to distinguish armored units, unarmored units, well-armored units, and not so well-armored units, uh, and if we're going to also then include things like field works and and wooden walls and stone walls, okay. Well, it, to me, in my mind, uh, what evokes that is you've been, you're, something's hitting you, a certain amount of stuff is hitting you, certain force is hitting you, but is your armor good enough to, to, to save you? Is your morale good enough to save you? Are the walls good enough to save you? Are your trench works good enough to save you? And so I think that's why I have, I reached for generate the number of hits, and now how many of those hits penetrate the armor or whatever it is? And maybe it's evasion, that's another way that you can, you know, you, you escape a hit by, by moving away, you know, after, after you've struck or whatever. So I don't know that mechanically it makes that much difference. At the end of the day, we have a certain amount of randomness, which is more arguably the same if it's a matter of, well, I have to roll a die to hit you um, versus you have to roll a die for my hit not to harm you, right? In the end of the day, we're rolling a die and it's a certain amount of lack of control over what happens on the battlefield that is that is i think realistic but for for what evokes to me armor or the evasion the evasiveness of use uh, of of nimble horses and um light light cavalry tactics to evade a counter blow and so forth uh or to take a take account wooden or stone walls of a fortification i i simply found it more evocative to say well it's your armor. You roll and see if you, you know, if you you absorb the hit or not. Does that answer that? Does that answer what you're wondering about? It does. It does. I mean, you know, the, it, clearly there are differences, uh, big differences based on scale, and and thus differences based on granularity. Yeah. And um, and you know, there there I think in many of the things that we do in design, there are multiple correct answers. Um, yeah. So so uh, as always, I mean, the, as always, the, the well defended. The, 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 I mean, the related aspect of this, the, the, the battle resolution system and living campaign that I, I thought might be more controversial is, and this is not, not necessarily typical in these kinds of games, is the, 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 the person who's absorbing, the player who's, who's, whose troops are absorbing the hit gets to choose which units take the hit. Uh, in other words, if I've got some heavily armored units and I've got some light units, and my heavily armored units are more valuable, but my light units are less likely to fend off the hit to roll that saving roll, I can choose. Do I, ha do I try to have my knights absorb all these hits and so that my army doesn't dissolve, but I might then lose my knights who are the core of the army? Or do I have my, um, you know, my, my lightly armored or, or unarmored, uh, you know, militia country folk <laughs> march forward and absorb the first blows while the knights stand by and, and save themselves? Um, for the for the for the counterstroke, let's say, okay. So I don't know whether how, whether everybody buys that that I can I can decide if you're attacking me, you're you're about, you're hitting me. I get to decide which troops I put in front of your strike, not you. I mean, either way, there's some abstraction here, and this is not a battle game. This is not a you're not maneuvering um, squadrons of of cavalry. Um, around hills and, 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 and over creeks, right? Um, we need these, the battles to be resolved quickly. There's some dice rolling. There's a, some decision-making. But the overall sense is meant to be you are commanding your army on campaign, your lords. Once, once your army meets in battle, you get a little bit of decision-making. But for the most part, you just have to uh, hope it goes well. 
and then to pro- and then to convey some character of what you get for having brought your knights to this point or what you get by having made sure that there are some crossbowmen and archers backing up your 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 spearmen that kind of thing right and so within that i thought it was more evocative to have uh, have you decide who are you putting out in front who are you going to risk and something that that does happen in these battles is that the elite the knights right that they're able to to keep the army together in a in a morale related way, right? As long as the knights are there and they're they're ready to charge or they're charging and and, and winning, um, I mean it's kind of like the, the 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 old guard at Waterloo, right? I mean it's not just that the old guard had a lot of combat potential man for man compared to other parts of the imperial army that Napoleon had there. If the old guard is retreating. Okay, it's over, right? Right. There's a moral aspect to that, and so in a way, I wanted to allow medieval knights in Levin campaign to do that. That the player can say, okay, I'm going to keep risking my knights, which are very tough, and if they can keep absorbing your blows, then all of that, you know, um, all of that light infantry that is not very um, well trained and probably not very well motivated and certainly not well protected. Um, It'll stick around too if if that's the way I want to do it. But if I'm going to do that, I'm risking that my most valuable troops get routed and destroyed early on. So it leads to it's not a lot of decision making in the battle sequence because again it's an operational game, not a tactical game. But I think it it leads to an interesting one. So I th- this is but I wasn't sure if people would buy that. Right. Yeah, I had no issues. Uh, and I personally had no issues. But it leads to a, to another interesting dimension of game design, which is uh, what do players want and expect and enjoy? Mm-hmm. It, because you know, I, I'd almost I'd almost like to do a survey. Uh, so yeah. so much of so much of what you and I experience as designers is anecdotal and really driven by our own biases. Um, Absolutely, good, good and bad, right? Uh, good for you, bad for me, probably. They, but they, they they are what they are. Yes, yes, and so it would be terrific. It would be interesting data in the afterwards to have you know a thousand randomly selected people that purchased either Pendragon or uh, Nevsky or both. Uh, give us their opinion on what they like, right? And mm-hmm. and like is different than uh, think is accurate. Right. Um, sure. Sometimes Absolutely. it's different. Uh, often it's different, and it would well, be interesting to see. Do, yeah, do, do, do mean, the players enjoy it? And then how much of that, the, the reality there? How much of that reality affects how you design? Yeah. Yeah, uh, I think it is so. I mean, I would love to see the results of your survey, uh, <laughs> and I think your listeners are now going to be expecting you to produce such results. Of course, of course. Um, <laughs> Uh, it, it is, it is so varied, so individual, and therefore, to me, so mysterious, that I really do fall back on what is evocative to me, what is plausible to me, you know, what, what do, what do I get a good feeling from when I play it, um, because. I, I think it's it's feckless to say I don't know I mean I I think for me anyways it's certainly feckless it's feckless is to to set out as a as a war game designer and say well I'm going to design this thing and everybody's going to love it you know what is that thing I mean there, there's no there's no popular game that's not controversial for some and ignored by others even though it's beloved by by many and 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 that's fine so. I, I mean, I, I guess I'm trying to envision an audience, but I'm the I'm the main audience, I guess. Yeah, you know, I I, I guess it it all it goes back to another thing we could debate uh, for hours, which is why do we design these games? Mm-hmm. And you know, some of us design them for for absolute accuracy and reflection mm-hmm. of what happened. Others design on the other extreme, which is player experience. Yeah, and and uh, depending on who your target audience is, right? I mean, there's some there's some a target audience that wants the accuracy, mm-hmm. or at least their perception of the accuracy, and then there's a thousand or a million iterations in between. 
Yeah. So um, in in uh, in South China Sea, my goal was a fast play game that players would enjoy and could learn quickly. And yeah, so it's a very different. You know, if 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 you're looking for accuracy, that's not the case. Um, you know, Mike Berticelli and Jason Carr's tank duel, um, mm-hmm. which you know I was involved in that at the start, and and the the idea was a game that had had um, just a fun and interesting feel for it, right? Heavily influenced by games like Upfront and To Brook, if you can compare those two, but just mix them, and and that was the original vision for Tank Duel. But it was because I loved going through all of the detail, whether it's accurate or not, I loved going through the detail of resolution of fire combat. But movement, on the other hand, I really didn't care that much about. So, you know, abstract all of that. And it, Yeah, you know, it's a... Um it is it is a it's a grayscale that is i think never constructively thought of as you're at the end of one endpoint of one end of the scale or the other um or or if you try to be that you're going to defeat yourself certainly in the realm of of board war games and and the so the way that i think about it and people have you know heard me um talk about this a lot is wargaming is model building what is a model a model is a purposeful simplification okay that's it always and and because in war games the model is of conflict human conflict a mass human endeavor the interaction of many many agents people you know people human beings who can decide to do things one way or another way uh, and all of what they're doing influences everybody else. It's a complex adaptive system. And that means complexity. That means we are always simplifying. We are never accurate. There is no, and we can do a show on this if you want. This is a challenge. Your listeners challenge me with a board war game. You know, give me some time to 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 get familiar with that board war game. And the one, the board war game they're challenging me with is, here's a board war game that is completely accurate, and Volko, you cannot find anything wrong with this model, right? And and I will and I will tell them what's wrong with this model, and then you can be the judge, and if I win, they have to buy me a beer. Now, how does the judge get paid? <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so, so that's so that's the thing is we. Every, it doesn't you it is self-defeating to say well we're going to be completely accurate now purposeful simplification means we don't just simplify willy-nilly we don't just ignore reality we don't ignore data we don't ignore knowledge and expertise we are trying to represent the real world knowing that our representation is going to fall short okay and so this is true in Campaign for North Africa, and this is true in um, in your game on the South China Sea. It's true of Twilight Struggle. Um, whatever Jason and Ananda might claim in their designer's notes, they are absolutely offering a model of the Cold War that is simplified for gameplay purposes. And we are all doing that. And so the question is, what is your purpose, right? And, and, in, and wrapped in that, it includes... Your idea, your bias as a designer, Harold, of what you think is fun, of what you think is fun, and what part of that fun you're trying to deliver with that particular design, and 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 you're not going to hit everybody's idea of fun. But part of fun for war gamers is not just clever gameplay, right? And and is not just is not just um, um, neat mechanics. Um, that's, you know, oh, these are innovative mechanics and it's not just social aspects. That's not the whole fun either for war gamers, nor is it competition, nor is winning and crushing your enemy or whatever. Um, all of the fun. If you're a board war gamer, I contend most likely a substantial component of your fun is the recreation of history, is the exploration of history, is the, the time travel, the tourism is that that this game, this war game, somehow is transporting you somewhere. And it's doing that 
through its model. It's doing that because the simplification has been done so cleverly, so purposefully, that you see some degree of accuracy in there. That what's happening in the game to you, what you see on the game board and so on, to you relates to some other place and time in the real world, right? And every war game is trying to deliver all of that. And the question then is how much is the how much is the fidelity, what you're saying, accuracy, how much is the fidelity to this reality worth rules burden or table space or numbers of components or whatever else? And sometimes we say, well, in this case, we want it to be playable at lunchtime, right? And so we're going to give up a lot of fidelity through a lot of clever simplification that is still seeking to convince you to suspend your disbelief that this is accurate. We're in the South China Sea. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. It does. And 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 um, although <clears throat> I'm a little confused about the accuracy versus your your term simplification. Mm-hmm. Um, that that simplification doesn't necessarily destroy accuracy, right? I mean, well, yes, it does. Uh, it, it does. It necessarily destroys. This is why they say all models wrong. So, for example, so what, think about um, a representation, a game, a model, a computer uh, simulation, um, a diorama, any any model. It, for one thing, it doesn't model the whole universe. Well, that, and, yeah, that's necessary, okay. right? I mean, you you to, it's to, necessary. to model it's absolutely the absolutely necessary. You have to scope. You have to draw boundaries, because if you model the whole universe, you're not going to be able to represent it down to the subatomic level, because that's not a model. That's the universe, right? Right. It's no, not the so, American Revolution. So you, we'd need okay. the American Revolution. We'd need people with guns and space and. Right, right, right. Exactly. And so you absolutely have to because your purpose is to represent the American Revolution on a tabletop with mechanics that a gamer can learn and operate without Harold in the room. I mean, that's your purpose. So you have to simplify. But we also know that the entire universe, at least indirectly, is interrelated. We also know if we want to zero in on just the planet Earth during a given war – that if it's a matter of international relations, foreign affairs, like wars, all, all, all the relations matter to some degree. Some matter more than others. So when you draw a border around your game board and you choose to include the Caribbean or not include the Caribbean, to you know include the passage across the Atlantic or not include the passage of the, across the Atlantic, to include what's happening in Europe between Spain, France, and Britain, you're making a simplification choice as a designer. You're saying those things are not important enough that I need to represent them directly on the game board. I might represent them a little bit through a simplified way, like some mechanics, some cards, right? Some off-map holding boxes, and so on. Okay. However, you that simplification introduces inaccuracy. This is inherent to model building. Every and when you um, when you scope some detail out and that detail has more than zero impact on the behavior of your system, you introduce error. And you have to accept that as a designer. Right. Well, I, I, I wonder, um, you know, I, and I'm going too far down this rabbit hole, but, but I, I, I guess I wonder if your conclusion that the abstraction creates error is by definition of abstraction or is it that abstraction uh, that perfectly reflects the real world is just impossible because you're going from so much detail to so much less detail? Uh, I suspect it is impossible, but I'm using the word simplification as more general than abstraction. Abstraction is one form of uh, simplification. Scoping, um, drawing borders uh, is another um uh, type of simplification, and they're all they're all necessary. We're always abstracting something. We're always reducing um, many human beings, sometimes millions of human beings' actions down to one player, for example, or one player and a few non-player mechanics. Um, we're always uh, 
drawing an edge to the map. We are also always drawing an end of time, right? We're always, we have a, a sequence of play or a time record track or something. We start at a certain time and we end at a certain time. Well, that's not how the real world works. And so you've heard of, in war games, you've heard of edge of world problems and you've heard of end of time problems. Okay. And so we have players are playing to, they only have to worry about the board edge and they only have to worry about the last turn of the game. And so we try to give them representational realistic incentives, which are partially abstracted, right? They're simplified because otherwise, if we were to give the players as many victory conditions as the real incentives operating on their real world counterparts, I mean, it would be a, it would be a book, you know, what, you know, what were the motivations of George Washington? You can write a whole book of that, right? You're not going to put that into your, into your, your victory conditions for the, for the, 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 the Patriots. Uh, so, and then, and then that's further abstracted by saying, and by the way, come this certain year or the fall of this card or the end of the deck or this turn, that's it. You're, you'll be judged at that point and you do not live another day. <laughs> okay. You don't have to worry about anything that happens after that. You know, you are aiming from the beginning to be in, to be, to have your performance measured at that point in time. Okay. And that can introduce aberrations in our model, right? And we struggle with that. And then we come up with clever ways to deal with that. But these are all inaccuracies introduced by the necessity that we simplify. And I get it. So so you're saying it's not the simplification isn't the error. The, the, the simplification creates errors. Correct. Because it's it is in simplification that our models fall short of reality. Necessarily, purposefully. And so What's, what is, to me, what is design skill? It's simplifying in the right way. It's doing it purposefully. It's doing it cleverly. It's doing it elegantly, right? Everybody's abstracting something, but how does this design, what choices do you make as a designer? And so very largely, it's what do you choose to leave out? What detail do you say, this detail doesn't matter enough, and you, and you leave it out? That's the skill, in my view. Well, Volko, that's brilliant and a great place to leave it for this meeting. Um, let's. It just reminds me how we should be doing this more often. I appreciate so much you spending the time and sharing your uh, thoughts and ideas and and uh, talking a little bit about Amaravid. Thanks, and I, you know, I, I, I wanted to say this is is great for me because I've been doing actually a lot of this just lately. So Sunday night with Dan Palcaldi on No Enemies Here, and Tuesday with. Georgetown University Wargaming Society online, and uh, and and now uh, with with you, Harold. So I feel like uh, I've actually gotten in a, a lot of uh, social contact this week. <laughs> That's great. Now we just need to figure out a way that you can charge for this, so we can make it a profit <laughs> center, not a cost center. Volko, let let me uh, let me close and and just say, uh, wish you and you and the family. Uh, good health and good times through this time of challenge. And uh, thanks for spending the time with me. Uh, th thanks, Harold. Thanks for doing this. Great fun.